Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Church of Christ, where our goal is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. Well, good morning, good morning, and good morning. It's good to be here today. I did a trial run with the first service. Now we get the A game. So this is good. I'm glad you guys are here and it's going to be a beautiful day. And, and God is so good to us at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home and this deep partnership we have with the Bluffton Church. The First Church of Christ in Bluffton has made huge impacts in local children in our program. And we, we just want to say thank you. Thank you from the kids, from the the staff, the house parents, people who live on grounds, our, our nine-member board of directors. It's been a good, strong, lasting partnership. And it's all for Christ and kids. That's what knits us together. That really what knits us together on grounds and everywhere in between Christ and kids. And, and the goal is to experience what we talked about in that video. We don't raise victims. We raise overcomers. Everybody's got something to overcome. The children who come to us come from a variety of different places, all of which is messy. Nobody comes to the Woodburn Christian Children's Home on a, on a winning streak. There's neglect, there's abuse, there's trauma. And we help them integrate the loss associated with that into their hearts while keeping Christ right in the middle. And people ask us all the time, how do you know when the kids are progressing? How do you know when they're starting to overcome? Because it's hard sometimes to see that. The kids come from a lot of different situations and their, their backdrop it kind of robs them sometimes of their ability to express their emotions. How do we know? And of course, we've got all the different measurables with their academics and their eating habits and sleeping habits and everything, you know, everything in between, the hygiene habits for the girls, all kinds of different ways of, of measuring it. But one of the best ways is to see the joy come out of them. Uh, and sometimes these kids have joy kind of robbed out of their hearts. And the kids in our care aren't, aren't unique in that sense. A lot of people have joy kind of robbed out of their hearts through life's experiences. And, and so we see joy. And, and for kids, you know, elementary, middle school, high school age, the joy comes out in a lot of different ways, most of the time with bad jokes. So like I told two bad jokes in the first service, and they were very complimentary and their laughter. Uh, you'll get two new jokes. Uh, so this is the first joke. This one's from Heather. She said to the Bluffton Church, why was the baby strawberry crying? Why was the baby strawberry crying? Well, obviously, it's mom and dad were in a jam. Oh, uh, yeah. You'll get it driving home. Tonight, you'll be like, oh, I know what he was talking about. Jam, jelly, you know, jelly squish things together. You got it, guys? Okay. So jam, yes. That's her joke. And she was giggling, you know, with that smile on her face. And she didn't have a lot to smile about when she showed up. Uh, but she's smiling now. And then the other joke comes from James. And this is, you know, James just thinks these things through. And he likes to make up his own jokes. But this is one that he stole. And, and I'm stealing it from him. And, and it goes something like this. What, what does the dentist... I hate to say that D word. I mean, is there any dentist in the house? I mean, I love you, but it's just... uh. So what does the... What does the dentist call an x-ray? If we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 today, we're going to get our brains thinking. What does the dentist call an x-ray? Obviously, he calls it a toothpick. A (laughs) toothpick. These kids are like... Can you please move on? No, that's, these are these are good jokes. These are I giggle when I hear these jokes, but but it's joy. I mean, and that's what the goal is is joy. Now, now joy isn't happiness, right? Happiness is when I get an extra ice cream scoop by accident and I don't tell them the truth. Joy, I mean, that's happiness. Uh, but joy is a deep-seated sense of rightness with God, where 
where we just stand at peace with God. That's joy. That's biblical joy. It's not circumstantial. It has to do with identity in Christ. And that's why we help these kids slowly over time kind of embrace their identity in Christ. They don't, they, don't, they don't need to be Christian to come or Christian to go, but all of our full-time staff, all of our staff, everybody, part-timers, tutors, everybody, is they have abandoned themselves to Christ. Uh, and they have given themselves over to the Christian ministry. So joy. Joy is a big thing for us there. And, and, and of course, we know life steals joy. And we're, we're, it's not just the kids. Everybody is susceptible to, to joy being squeezed out of life. Grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, kids, everybody. I mean, everybody's got stuff going on. A lot of parents parent through unresolved grief and trauma. We see that all the time. In all the workshops we do in all the different churches, it is a very common thread. Parents parent through unresolved grief and trauma. And that causes pressure. That pressure causes it to be squeezing out of the joy. Uh, or, or, or it could just simply be sleep deprivation. I was mentioned to the first service, there's a family I got to know that they have four young kids, like little, little chicklings. And I'm, and I'm like, wow, you haven't slept for like five years. And the, the mom got a little teary-eyed. She's like, yes. I haven't slept in like five years. I'm like, I get it. I get the, I, you know, sleep deprivation causes pressure. Unrealistic expectations. Employers, families, kids, whatever it may be. All kinds of kids. Our kids have a lot of pressure on them. Social pressure. Whether it's based on what they're interacting with on social media or just showing up at the schools and the different places. Or even youth group creates a lot of pressure. I just taught up at Lake James Christian Camp two different groups of kids four days in a row, and the one group was fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, 95 of these little rugrats running around, and they're under pressure, even at camp, to fit in socially. And these pressures cause us to lose sight of joy. Also, for what we're going to talk about today, it also causes us to lose sight of what we would consider to be family development. Family development, where a family comes alongside everybody and helps them develop physically, educationally, emotionally, spiritually. And of course, we know this is, you can't, you can't get around the pressure. You have to go through the pressure. And God's got a solution for the pressure. And it's very simple. It is a Christ-centered family. That is God's solution for the pressure. If you go to that next slide, you'll see it. This is one of those time-tested truths at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home. We believe, and I wrote, we wrote it down in this trifold. If you didn't get a trifold on the way in, make sure you get one on the way out. We sometimes put $100 bills in them, and it might be your lucky day. <laughs> but it's monopoly money. But nonetheless, it's a, a, the family is God's chosen medium or platform or place. Family is God's chosen medium for the transmission of godly lifestyle and value. And some people are like, well, no, that's why I go to church. Well, church is just a helper in that. Well, that's why I send my kids to youth group. That's why I send them to ICYC and, and to, to all the other types of youth activities, the camps and stuff. Yeah, they're all helpers in that. Uh, we, family, your family is responsible 100% for your child's physical, educational, emotional, and spiritual or Christian development. We only see your kids a couple hours a week. You see them 120 hours a week, whether you like it or not. So it's family. God has a solution for the pressure, and he has a solution for the development. If you go to that next slide, you'll see this, this is kind of what we expect to happen at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home. It's not rocket science. 
Those circles represent what we call them as developmental domains. And it's physical development, you know, sleeping habits, eating habits, hygiene habits, social habits. It's, it's the rhythm of Christianity. Uh, of course, we know education, not just education with academics, but life skill. Families so often live in this survival mode, just trying to get through it. Whether the it is terrible twos, or the it is the crazy teenage years, or maybe the it is the 35-year-old child who is making decisions that blow your mind. The it could be all types of ages and ranges, but educate life skill. There's not a lot of life skill teaching in survival mode. We're just trying to get through it. Of course, emotional and spiritual. Now, when I say spiritual, I mean a Christian faith. It used to be pretty clear spiritual meant Christian faith 100 years ago, but now it's shoving jelly beans up your nose is spiritual. I mean, everything is spiritual these days. So I want to make it clear we're talking about spirits, the Christian faith. And this development happens fairly naturally if the adults are creating a stable environment, uh, available, predictable, and accountable. People ask, what do you do with the kids when they come to the Woodburn Christian Children's Home? This is what we do. And what do you do when you do your parenting workshops? We do them all the time. This is what we do. We zoom into these developmental domains. And this is what we're going to talk about today in Luke chapter 10 because it's really, really important for us to take an opportunity to help our kids develop. And it's so important. My wife and I take this very important, very seriously. We don't just talk about this. We actually believe that a Christ-centered family is what we are to offer our children. And now my wife and I have grandkids. So in Mark chapter 1, we took a couple of our grandkids. These are crazy kids. I mean, they are crazy. It doesn't matter how much sugar they eat. They're off the charts without sugar or with sugar. And, and we took their hands and we put their hands in ink pads, which was kind of funny. Uh, and, and, put them in, and then we put their handprints in my Bible. Because every time I open up my Bible, I think about my high calling as a Christian grandfather. I, any kid, any grandfather can take their, their kid fishing. Any grandfather can take their kid, their grandkid and get, and get a matchbox car or a Barbie doll. But a Christian grandfather has a unique positional authority to proclaim Christ into the hearts of children. And if you don't have a Christian grandfather, the church will give you one. All of my Christian grandparents, aunts and uncles all came from the church, not from my family. I was raised in a really chaotic, traumatic family, and that didn't give me an excuse to be crazy. The church gave me everything I needed. You folks form a family system around the children in this church, whether the children are 15 years old or 55 years old. It's a high calling. So we're going to talk about Luke chapter 10. And we're going to jump into this passage and we're going to ask ourselves, what does a Christian home look like when Jesus is sitting metaphorically or so, so to speak, right in the middle of your living room? What does it look like when Christ is right in the middle of it? Just right in the middle of, quote-unquote, it. It's a really powerful passage. It's only four verses, but we're going to root our way through it for the next 20 minutes and help you see that God's Word provides everything we need to raise Christian children, Christian adults, Christian cousins and uncles and grandparents. The Bible provides everything we need. And these little tiny verses will help us get that going. So Luke chapter 10, verse 38. You'll see it show up on the board. We're going to begin reading in verse 38. The Bible reads, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way. Now, we're not going to stop at every comma. 
I did this in the last service. We're not going to stop at every comma or every period or every question mark because we're going to be here all day. But we're going to stop at this particular comma because it's really important for us to set this passage in context. You know, at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home, we teach the kids biblical doctrine. We stick with the black marks on the page. Uh, But we also teach them how to read the Bible. With your kids and grandkids, your nieces and nephews, these church kids, yeah, they should be memorizing Scripture. Well, I pray you're teaching them how to read the Bible. And in this particular passage, I call this opening statement a speed bump. Now, I'm, a, I'm from the East Coast. I'm from the Philadelphia area. And I see a speed bump. I speed up. Don't tell me what to do. But in this particular passage, right, uh, we're supposed to slow down just for a quick second. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way. You know, we're supposed to ask ourselves when we're reading this, on their way from where and on their way to where. Because it's very important to put the passage in context. Context always precedes content. Too often we get it, we get it backwards and we start misusing text. And so with the children in our care, we spend a lot of time teaching context because obviously it's very important to know where Jesus was before he hit the doorframe of Martha's home. Everybody's got a backstory. Your children coming home from school, whether that's homeschool or out in a public school or a private school, they're coming out of a set of experiences before they hit the threshold of your home. Too often we jump into that, I call it the witching hour, the 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. hour. Too often we dive into that, not taking into consideration where these kids are coming from. Uh, We just jump right into what they should be doing next. So Jesus and his disciples were on their way. And if we go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we're told where they're coming from and where they're going. And and the answer to the question is really, really important. Uh, Listen to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus, and I love this word, resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus, I mean, he he was up in the northern part of the kingdom, near the Sea of Galilee, and and Jerusalem was down here, and he kind of swiveled his hips, so to speak, and resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He wasn't a wanderer. He wasn't just, I have one of my daughters, she's a wanderer, she's a professional artist, and she she has always wandered through life. And she does such a good job at it, I'm so task-focused all the time, I learn a lot from my daughter, Caitlin. But he didn't, Jesus... He didn't wander down to Jerusalem. He resolutely set out for it because Jerusalem represented the cross. Jesus had been to Jerusalem before when he was in his earthly ministry, but he hadn't been to the cross before. And in Luke chapter 9, he set out to accomplish the mission of the Messiah. He experienced the incarnation to experience the mission to fulfill God's plan of salvation for us so that we could be overcomers. All of us who have given our lives to Christ and Christian baptism are overcomers in Christ. We're, we, have, the, the, we have overcome death and we have overcome guilt. And Jesus, he was going to the cross to overcome. So everything from Luke chapter 9 to Luke chapter 19 is his, so to speak, travel log to the cross. So now when we jump into Luke 10, 8, 10, 38, you know, it's, he's just not randomly showing up at Martha's house. 
This is a very specific, calculated movement into her home so that we can learn what is home. What is home when Jesus is sitting right in the middle of it? It's really interesting. Listen to this. Verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. It's a typical situation in a home. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Just in this little four-verse dialogue, so much of what is home is revealed to us. First of all, we know that home, based on verse 40, is a place where we are easily distracted. I mean, a Christ-centered home, we are easily distracted. At the Woodburn Christian Children's Home, we are easily distracted. At any given time, we have 20 kids, boys and girls, six years old and older, living in our homes they have all unique physical and educational and emotional and spiritual needs. They've got a lot of backdrop they're emerging out of. Their families are a huge part of our ministry because lasting change happens when the family changes more than the child does. We can make these children walk like ducks pretty quick with the other ducks. But lasting change happens when the family changes more than the child. And we spend a lot of time working. There's a lot of moving parts. I mean, it, it's like hurting cats. Everybody's got doctor and dentist appointments. Everybody's got this. They're all way behind on everything. Academics, two or three years. It's, there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, it's easy for us at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home to get distracted. I, I'm sure it's easy for everybody else. It was for my wife and I when we had our four younger kids. It's easy to get distracted. I mean, we teach the kids to eat all the food on their plate because every, all the food they have and we use there is donated from folks just like you. We get over $50,000 in pantry donations. We'll have a farmer who loves the Woodburn Christian Children's Home call us on the phone and he'll say, Moo, and we're like, all right, we got to get a truck. And we're going to go pick up a cow. And we did it not too long ago and we were supposed to pick up two cows and then the truck came on ground. We waved at the, the, the cow before they went over to the... And I get excited about cows. I was, I was raised in the inner city. We used to take field trips to see cows. And, and then we, this truck came on ground. There was supposed to be two. There was three. And, and, I, and I asked the driver. I'm like, there was supposed to be two. He's like, oh, well, there was another one milling around the ramp. So they sent him along too. And I was like, oh, there's a lesson. <laughs> Don't mill around the ramp of a cattle truck. <laughs> so three came along. And, and, but all the food we give these kids, we feed 35 people on 500 bucks a month, three meals a day. Because of all, so we tell these kids, don't throw away the food. Don't throw away somebody else's tithe. Don't throw away God's grace. That's important, but it's not the main thing. The main thing is Jesus the Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. A Christ-centered home, it's important to eat all the food, but it's not the main thing. We get distracted by, by minors. We tend to major in minors. Churches who lose their view of their mission usually major in minors. Christian families as well. Guilty as charged. Uh, we teach the kids, of course, to do their homework 
and to turn it in, which, by the way, it's a two-step process. <laughs> do it, turn it in. So many of our kids do their homework, but don't turn it in. We're like, Johnny, what were you thinking? He's like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. So you did all that work, and you didn't turn in your homework. We teach the kids, of course, to do chores, to participate in the well-being of the family. And, and of course, we teach the kids to get along because they don't like to share air. <laughs> so we teach them to get along. They're like tops of the table. <laughs> They just get too close to each other. These are all good things to teach kids, grandkids, nieces and nephews, but they're not the main thing. Home is a place we can easily distract. And Martha was distracted by all the preparations, and it was a good distraction. She was fulfilling her cultural responsibilities. In the Bible times, hospitality was a big deal. Everything you had, all your time, talents, and treasures were at the disposal of the visitor. And, and many believe that Martha knew who Jesus was at this point. He wasn't just some random teacher. He wasn't just a great guy that was helping people. She believed, many believe, that she knew he was the Messiah, the long-awaited hope of Israel. And this Jesus, with his disciples, 12 at least, came into her home. Yes, there are preparations to be made. We have a golf outing every year, 120 golfers. There is preparations to be made. Every year in October, we have an auction, raise $200,000, 700 people come to it. There's preparations to be made, but we can't lose sight of the main thing because of the preparations. Martha, there's preparations. I mean, when the Messiah is coming into your home, you would think you'd sweep the dirt underneath the carpet and take the goats out. I mean, you just want to clean the place up for the Jesus. Uh, and in that distraction, Jesus brought her back onto the main thing. Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. How, how do children develop physically, educationally, emotionally, and spiritually? Well, they do that when it's Christ-centered, and we keep the main thing. The main thing. The other thing that pops out of this passage is the question mark. I don't know if you've ever seen or done a question mark study. It's really, really fascinating to hop through the Bible to the question marks. Now, the question marks are not part of the original language. The Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek and the Aramaic of the New Testament, there's not question marks in those languages. We integrate those to help us read it better. But nonetheless, question marks are really good. I, I don't know if you, if you realize or remember who asked the first question recorded in the Bible. It's way back in Genesis chapter Three, who asked the first question? Satan, <laughs> the serpent. He asked Eve, did God really say you shouldn't eat out of that tree? Who asked the second question? God, he, what, what did you do? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of questions throughout the Bible. It's a fascinating study. All over the Psalms, there's questions after questions. People are calling up to God. Martha asked Jesus a question. And it's an interesting question. She knew his identity, most likely. She knew of his power to heal, his power to teach, and his power that was anointed on him to fulfill the Old Testament hope. She knew who he was, and he was in her living room. If Jesus was in your living room, what question would you ask him? Of all the questions you could ask him, what would you ask him? Martha asked him a question that I would suggest is kind of silly. I don't want to say it's stupid, but it's close to it. She said to Jesus, the one with the power, Lord, don't you care? Lord, don't you care? Can, we, can, can anybody echo that question? 
Lord, don't you care about the diagnosis? Don't you care about what they're saying about me? Don't you care about the money? Such I love that devotion that was done for, for the offering. Don't you care, Lord? That, why are you asking me for more? Don't you know I'm already full? Don't you care? Don't you care about, about what my daughter's doing? Oh, my goodness. Don't you care? Throughout the ages, people have cried out to God, Don't you care? And I love this because... Because Martha asked this kind of silly question to the, to the Redeemer. She asked this question to him in her home. And, and I think home should be a safe place to ask silly questions. Is your home, is this church home, a safe place to ask silly questions? Or are people made to feel dumb by asking silly questions? At the Woodburn Christian Children's Home, we get all kinds of questions. Oh, my goodness. They want to know where the, where the D word is. They want to know where the dinosaurs are in the Bible. Because we go down pretty young in age. We got six and eight-year-olds in our care. They're like, where's the dinosaurs at? You know, they, want to, they have questions. If we don't answer these questions, if we don't provide an environment to answer or for them to ask silly questions, where, where are they going to ask them? Who are they going to ask them? Well, we know who they're going to ask. The public school, the media, the online stuff, they're going, to get, they're going to get all kinds of crazy answers. You may not like the answers. I think it's the Christian family's responsibility to create an environment where kids can ask dumb questions. We were asked not too long ago on the way to Good Friday service. One of the kids was like, why do they call it Good Friday? Isn't that the day he was murdered? Yes, that's a very understandable question. Uh, we also get big questions like, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful... In all places at all time, where was he when I was being abused? Where was he when my dad overdosed on drugs? Which every year we have to have, a, have that conversation with a child. Uh, drugs and alcohol is an epidemic. That's, Satan has used to dismantle the American family. 70, 44% of the kids in this country, the head of household is somebody other than a biological parent. The problem is upon us. But God is a solution, a Christian family. And, and, and we get all kinds of questions like this. And we provide a safe place for these children to ask silly questions. That's what, that's what home is. Because Jesus, when she came to him and said, Lord, don't you care? I love the way he responds in verse 41. He didn't say, gosh, Martha, how stupid can you be? You've seen all that I've done. You've seen all that I've said. How can you ask that dumb question? No, no, Jesus didn't embarrass her in her home. All he said to her was, Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. He just brought her back onto the main thing. The other part that really jumps out of this Bible, of course, is the conflict. Martha was angry. <laughs> she was mad at Mary. I, I don't want to make it sound goofy, but Martha was doing the dishes while Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. I mean, that's a big deal. Uh, there's a lot in that, but the fact that Martha was upset is what I wanted to zoom into. She was mad. She was angry. You know, and, and conflict's inevitable in relationships. I, I told the joke in the first service that you know, my wife and I, we live in Auburn, up there, up the road a little bit, and, and she uh, we lived there for 14 years, and, and there's one Walmart, and there's, there's two ways to go to Walmart. My way... Or the wrong way. <laughs> and so we constantly bicker about where to put the stupid sugar in the cabinet and which way to go to this and which way to do that and who to do with what. And, and it, conflict's inevitable. You can't avoid it. It's like the stomach flu. You might as well deal with the symptoms. I, I believe if you're in a relationship for more than 48 seconds, you're going to have conflict. 
Can't avoid it. You should learn how to manage it. And I also believe that if that's a learned skill, that if we don't learn and teach how to manage conflict, the children will come up with their own ways. And I say that because my youngest son, way back in the day, I was an engineer working in the Philadelphia area, sucking down cheesesteaks, minding my own business until I got indigestion, but it was, turned out to be a call from God to leave everything and go to Bible college. But before that, we were in this big, beautiful house in the cul-de-sac. Uh, and, and our youngest was five years old. And, and on a Saturday morning at 10 a.m.-ish, I'm drinking my, my coffee, looking out the big picture window on the big backyard. And our oldest daughter, she was a sixth grader, comes running through the view of the window. Panic, but a big smile on her face. I was like, well, that's odd. So, but at that point in my parenting career, if I'm not invited, I'm not joining. So I just kept on drinking my coffee. And then just a second later, her next, her younger sister flying through the view of the window, panic, smile. I was like, that's odd. You know, and then just a second later, our five-year-old comes running through the view of the window carrying a plastic baseball bat. He was chasing those girls down. He was going to manage conflict his way. Now, I didn't teach him that. I don't know if he got it from Spongebob. I don't know where he got it from, but that was his solution. And I don't even know what those girls did. I mean, I kind of have an idea. He, he was able to run faster in Barbie slippers than he was in sneakers. But nonetheless, he was done at five years old. He was going to manage it his way. And, and I caught, it caught me off guard because I was like, where did he get that from? Who taught him to manage conflict that way? I used to manage conflict in the corporate world. And you'd be surprised the dumb stuff we do to manage conflict. The gossip and the slander and the passive aggression and all. We, we do workshops at the Woodburn Christian Children's Home all the time to churches and families on how to manage conflict. It's, one, it's, it's an accelerator conflict. It'll either accelerate your closeness or it'll accelerate your separateness. Uh, and there's no way to avoid it. And so we teach people about managing conflict, about, about understanding the emotional set point of the house. I was raised in a home where it was two degrees below boiling. Any infraction of the unwritten rules of the home, they'd be chucking chairs at you. I mean, it was just a raging home. Uh, what's the emotional set point of your home? Is it two degrees below boiling? That stunts development, <laughs> by the way. Uh, and so we go through these, we talk about this managing conflict methodologies, the triggers, uh, the, the mechanics of managing conflict and, and how to fight fair in the sandbox and all that kind of stuff. It's important to us because we believe at the children's home that healthy Christian families produce healthy Christian churches. And the opposite is true. Managing conflict is an opportunity to do. Uh, people were like, well, I don't like conflict. Well, that's an excuse. Uh, I don't know if Christ liked going across, but he did it anyway. I mean, it's just we have to challenge ourselves to participate in the Christian faith. And, and Martha, she was mad. And she taught us one of the first ways to manage conflict. Because Martha was mad at Mary. Picture a triangle. You know, just, just picture a triangle like this. And you got Martha over here and Mary over here. And you're this triangle. I'm not trying to hypnotize you. Although we do need another home at the children's home. So give more, give more. No, <laughs> But uh, we have Martha and Mary on this triangle. And Martha was angry with Mary. She could have gone to Peter. And said, Peter, you know, you see what this loser Mary's doing? He, she could have gone to Andrew or any one of the disciples. But instead of triangulating in somebody without power, which is what we always do in conflict, she triangulated in Jesus the Christ, the one with power. And by triangulating him into it, she found a very quick solution because Jesus didn't rebuke 
Mary, Jesus brought the conflicted heart back onto the main thing. He brought Mary, Martha, back onto the main thing. Managing conflict is a beautiful way. And if we don't teach our kids how to manage conflict, who in the world will? Well, we know media will. Goodness gracious, a horrendous violence on TV and the streaming uh, entertainment. It's just sickening the, what has become normal for violence. Uh, we, we, the, the social media and those posts on YouTube and this, the, the bashing of faces on the Twitter. Oh my goodness, it's just, it'd blow your mind what these kids are sipping from. Christian, Christ-centered families are challenged to teach kids how to manage conflict so that they can develop physically, educationally. And you'd be like, wow, I wish I'd have known this 20 years ago. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> I wish to, so we just reset the system. We don't, it doesn't matter how old the kids are. We can reset the system. Uh, because this is what we do at the children's home. Uh, we help reset the system. And, and I love this, this little passage. And there's so much more we could pull from it. We're... we're we're definitely you've got two minutes of your time left, and I'm done. But, but one of the things I want to just walk away with uh, to leave in your heart is this the, the overall picture of what's going on here. Jesus was in the northern part of the kingdom. He travels, he's traveling down to the cross. Martha's home, it's about a day's walk. I don't know, I didn't walk it myself. They tell me it's about a day's walk. It's not an easy walk, right? Jerusalem's on a, uh, if you've ever been to the heartland, it's on a naturally protected ridge. That's why it's so hard to conquer. Uh, three sides of its cliffs, not like crazy cliffs, but cliffs. You know, they have the upper hand, so to speak, which is so hard to conquer Jerusalem. And they walk up the central ridge, and they walk up to Jerusalem because it's uphill. It isn't like going down here to the street fair and walking flat and then sucking down all the junk food all around. You walk it uphill. <laughs> and so Jesus is, is traveling to Martha's home. It's a physical exertion. I don't want to rob him of his divinity, but there is a physical responsibility we have to understand here. Was he hungry? Was he thirsty? I don't know. The text doesn't say. Why did he stop at Martha's house? The text doesn't say, but we know Martha's house is right around the corner from the cross just about. Did, did Jesus stop at Martha's house because he wanted to be one with the ones he loved before he was rejected and crucified and buried? I would suggest that's not a bad possibility uh, Martha's home, on some level, was a retreat for Jesus, a place to stop right before the mission was to hit its peak. And that tells us something about home. My daughters, who were being chased down by their brother with a plastic baseball bat, which, by the way, he never, would never have caught them. But if he did, it would have been probably served them right. But nonetheless, he didn't catch them. You know where those girls ran that morning? They didn't run to 7-Eleven. They didn't run to our neighbor's house. You know where they ran that morning? To my home. To my wife and my home. Because our home was a safe place to retreat to. Why did Jesus go to Martha's house? It was a safe place to retreat to. I pray that your home is a safe place to retreat to. I pray this church is a place where people can land safely. No matter what's going on in a mess out there, I pray the kids will find home right here in these hallowed walls so that they can be safe and ask the questions and manage the conflict and deal with the distractions so they can develop into strong Christian proclaimers of the truth. That's what I pray. I don't pray for money and vacations. I pray for 
stability and focus. That's what we need in this country, stability and focus. Uh, home should be a safe place. Like, like God wrote to Isaiah in chapter 32, to the people that were coming back from exile, God's writing to the moms of the Old Testament and says, my people will live in peaceful dwelling places. God was making that possible, not us. Uh, It's not about getting the right microwave. My people will live in secure homes. My people will live in undisturbed places of rest, shalom. That's what home is. That's how child development occurs. And, And because after all, it's not... It's not necessarily ultimately about a place to live, but but it's about the people uh, with whom we are most fully alive. Think about that. You see that on the slide up there. Home is not ultimately about a place to live, but about the people uh, with home with whom you are most are most fully alive. I pray that that you'll help us provide this to the children at the Woodbury Christian Children's Home, and I pray that you will take this as a challenge for your own homes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, these words that come out of your your Bible, Father, they are heavy at times. Uh, but Lord, you have made us people of the Spirit. We have the mind of Christ through our faith in Jesus. You've given us power. The same power, Father, that brought Jesus out of the grave, you've given into our hearts. We have power. Uh, we're not weak, blown around like nothing. We are, we are people of power. So help us, Father, to tap into the power. Raise kids in Christ. And, Father, help us to, to keep the main thing, Father, the main thing we pray in Christ. Thanks for listening to this podcast by First Church of Christ in Bluffton, Indiana. For more information, visit FCCFamily.com.